Hello, and welcome to the Permanente Medicine Podcast. I'm Chris Grant, your host and Chief Operating Officer of the Permanente Federation, an organization representing the shared interests of eight Permanente medical groups with nearly 23,000 physicians and over 80,000 employees. These podcasts are designed to get to know some of the most innovative minds in healthcare in a casual setting. Joining me today is Dr. Samir Osare, an internal medicine physician, associate executive director of the Permanente Medical Group, and leader of their opioid initiative. Today's episode is special in that we also have a second guest joining us on the phone. Dr. Carol Forrester is a trained pharmacist, a practicing primary care physician, and the physician director of pharmacy and therapeutics and medication safety for the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group. It's such a privilege to have both of you here today. You bring such an extraordinary background, both as practicing physicians and as policy leaders and experts in opioid addiction and addictive medicine. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to kind of get started with our listeners learning a little bit more about you as an individual. Dr. Asari, we could maybe start with your story on why you decided to go into medicine and what brought you to practice Permanente Medicine at Kaiser Permanente. So, you know, believe it or not, I knew I wanted to be a physician when I was about three years old. My mother got a scholarship to the University of Pennsylvania, and she left me with my grandparents, who were both physicians. One was a family physician, and the other was the OBGYN. And I guess they never believed in babysitters, so I got to go everywhere. I went with them to the home visits. I sat in the office and clinic and peered into people's mouths as they were checking their throats. And they even took me to the OR and kept me there. I guess if it was a family business, uh, you could do all of those kinds of things. And when I grew up, I always knew that I wanted to be a physician. And I am the fourth generation physician in my family. Wow. Kaiser Permanente, the meeting was totally by chance. I had done my training at UC Irvine for undergrad and med school and was ready to do my residency there when my best friend actually interviewed at Kaiser Santa Clara for residency. And he said, you should check this place out. And I remember coming there for the interview, and it was spectacular. The residents were great. The chief of medicine was great. The PIC actually stopped and asked a medical student how his day was going. And I was totally sold. And I actually ranked that as my first choice, along with my best buddy, and we both uh, ended up matching at Santa Clara. And just loved the you know, freedom that I had to practice medicine. I could actually do the right thing for my patient without checking with Mother May I Health Plan. And I've never looked back, and I'd do it again. That's terrific. And it is that humanistic uh, touch that I often hear from Permanente doctors of what made them so interested in joining the Permanente Medical Group and Kaiser Permanente. And, you know, you're one of the few individuals I know that can say, I've been doing house calls for 50 years because you started when you were three. That's right. <laughs> uh, Dr. Forrester, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about what got you interested in medicine and why Kaiser Permanente and the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group? Sure, Chris. Thanks. So, well, I have a little bit of a different story than Samir. I started out in med tech, actually. And then um, luckily, in that same college of health professions, there was a pharmacy major. And I ended up being drawn to that major even before I graduated college. Somewhere during my undergrad degree, probably in the fourth year, 
I thought, you know, I have a lot of training, I have a lot of education, and I'm not really going to be using all of this knowledge when I graduate because I'll probably just end up working in a pharmacy somewhere or not really be able to be part of the team. So I decided to go on to medical school. And I actually had a couple of friends that also did the same regarding why Kaiser Permanente. So I had family that lived in Southern California, and I have been visiting them here and there. And I always saw those KP medical centers and uh, hospitals along the freeways. And it always intrigued me. I thought, wow, this is such a large organization. It must be pretty good. And then when I actually started looking for opportunities of where to work, once I got done with my residency, I uh, interviewed out there in a three or four different centers out in California, and I liked every one of them. And really, the opportunity to work in that kind of an integrated system was really all I wanted, especially working with partners that were pharmacists and nurses. I felt very connected to the allied health professions from my background. So that's how I ended up with Kaiser Permanente. That's great. And how fortunate we are that both of you joined the Permanente Medical Groups, because not only are you incredible experts within our organization, but the two of you have become renowned experts on addictive medicine and and opioid use. All right, let's shift gears here uh, to probably one of the biggest news stories and perhaps the greatest tragedy in recent American history, the opioid epidemic. And despite the hundreds and thousands of stories, I'm still, each time I hear about the tragic consequences, I'm reminded of the scope of the opioid problem that we have in this country. More than 1,000 people per day are treated in the ED for misuse of opioids. I remember my son, who's a medical school student, telling me that, Dad, look at Levi Stadium. Every person that's sitting in that stadium will be dead in a year. It's the same number of individuals that succumb to opioid addiction and death. And just that sheer visual I think, wakes us all up to the meaningful tragedy. What got us as a nation to this point? Well, you know, it's an interesting story. We've been using opioids since as early as 1850 or 1860 as a way to treat soldiers in the Civil War, believe it or not, and that was using morphine. Of course, many of them still developed addictions and dependencies afterwards, but in 1898, the Bayer Company introduced heroin, saying that was a much less habit-forming than morphine, and heroin was around for a couple of decades. Then throughout the early 1900s, the people were starting to see there's some problems with heroin, and some restrictions were being placed on opioids and narcotics, and they actually started requiring that a formal prescription was being written, because up until then, you didn't even need a prescription. And they also eventually did outlaw heroin. So then we move all the way up to the 70s, and the Controlled Substances Act is passed, and that divides up those drugs into five classes based on basically their side effects and addiction potential. And then the big turning point, I think, is in the mid-1990s when a drug company called Purdue Pharma introduced OxyContin, which is a version of oxycodone, and again, promoted it as a gentle and less addictive opioid pill. And we all know the story, I think, at this point, with very successful marketing strategies. Even though there was not much evidence to back up the claims, the prescribing of OxyContin skyrocketed. And there was increasing numbers of people becoming addicted to the drug. 
Slowly, the evidence of the addiction potential became very clear and lawsuits were filed, but still prescribing the drugs was a problem. And it seems as though to me that the reason why that just continued is it is an easy alternative when someone comes in and says they have pain. Sometimes the non-drug therapies and the the other methods of treating pain is are, are not available in some geographic areas, and it's much easier just to write a prescription. So finally, the CDC published guidelines for opioid guidance for prescribing opioids in March of 2016, and then October 2017, the U.S. was officially declared to be in a public health crisis due to opioids. And that's where that number comes from. About 70,000 people died in 2017 from drug overdoses, and that made it a leading cause of injury-related death in the U.S. One other thing, which is, you know, we deal with pain so differently in this country. An interesting statistic is we make up 4.7% of the world's population, yet we use 99% of the world's hydrocodone, so that's Norco, Mm -hmm. and 80% of the world's opioids. So something is Mm -hmm. wrong with this picture, as Carol has pointed out. So opioid addiction is a problem that affects every generation, every ethnicity, and quite frankly, every state in the United States. Yet we do see a greater concentration in in particular geographies. Why is that the case? You know, it's interesting. There are maps of the United States that you can find on various sites, the CDC and other sites, where it will show you that some states have significantly more opioid prescriptions per person than others. And it can be anywhere from maybe like 50 per 100 to up to 150 per 100 people. So why such variation? And a lot of it is in the South, and it tends to be a little bit more on the East Coast versus the West. And why would that be? So as I mentioned before, it's an easy way out to treat a patient with just a prescription and not try some of the other non-drug therapies or non-opioid therapies. And in some of those states, they're very rural. There just aren't a lot of other resources around. We take for granted in our cities that we have physical therapists and pain psychologists and and pain pharmacists and specialized nursing and mind-body medicine and yoga and all these different therapies. And we don't have that in, in these geographic areas. There may be just one family practice doc for a 200-mile radius, and those patients still have chronic pain syndrome. So what what do they do? Um, They write a prescription. Also, in some areas, the insurance companies are just not covering some of these alternative therapies. So again, what do they do? They write a prescription. So I think it's an uneven distribution of resources, and sometimes it is education, and sometimes it is other factors, but that's probably um, some of the key ones. And that highlights really the paramount need for us as an organization to share what's been developed in Kaiser Permanente with others to ensure that this understanding of alternative approaches to pain and alternative medicine is very real and an option. Mm -hmm. I actually want to follow up with the interesting point to what Carol said. Last year, the Board of CalPERS invited me to speak to them about the opioid issue, and they had some internal data. So they showed a map of the state of California, and they are actually in every single county. And the interesting fact was that in the counties where we had Kaiser Permanente, both in the north and south, 
the data on overdoses and deaths was significantly lower. In the counties where Kaiser Permanente was not there, we looked just like those states on the East Coast or in the South. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And, and, yeah. and so not only are we having an impact on Kaiser Permanente members, but through this shared learning and adoption of programs, we're having an effect on the entirety of the community. That's terrific. Kaiser Permanente is often recognized by other health organizations and the media for our advancement in the prevention and treatment of opioid use. Let's discuss a few of these initiatives in more detail. Dr. Asari, TPMG's opioid initiative saw a 43% reduction in high-dose opioid prescriptions in its first two years. Can you elaborate on the four-pronged approach to opioid safety that focuses on physician education and support, patient education, patient safety, and community protection? Yes, absolutely, Chris. And these results were actually replicated in each one of our Kaiser Permanente regions. So this is not just TPMG-specific. I would say it's PMG-specific and nation-leading. So as you've heard from both of us, there was a lot of education on how to treat pain in the past, and it was probably not correct. And so the main focus for us was to really educate our physicians on what is the right way to treat pain, acute pain, chronic pain. And often this was not taught to them in medical school or in residency. So fortunately for us, we have a great electronic medical record and we were able to put in things that highlighted some of the areas that physicians should be paying attention to. But what works really best is data. If you don't even know which patients you have on what sort of opioids, you really can make a difference. And if you can't compare to your colleague who's next to you who has a similar practice, again, you can't really make a whole lot of differences. And so giving physicians reports that showed their practice patterns, comparing them to their colleagues in a transparent fashion, and giving them the tools to make the right choices was really critical for our success, not only in TPMG, but in all of our PMGs. It is often that data and that understanding of practice patterns and variation that do drive the right improvements in behavior and in safety. Can you talk a little bit about some of the non-pharmacological therapies that have proven effective? Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of different things that patients can use from simple things like physical therapy to acupuncture to Tai Chi to yoga. And the good part about working in an integrated medical system is that I can simply go into e-consult and order it and my patient can get it versus Mm -hmm. in the outside world. Somebody has to, again, do mother may I, can I do this? And often these kinds of uh, modalities are not available to our patients. Mind-body programs, cognitive behavioral therapy, and in some cases when patients are actually addicted, access to addiction medicine and recovery services, which are all easily available to us and our patients. I really want to just add that I think that's just one of the wonderful things about our setting. We have the team approach to the patient. We have pain specialists in pharmacy, in nursing, in psychology, in PT, behavioral health. We have those resources available, and and you need many of them sometimes for very complex and challenging patients. So it's really important to have the right resources for the patient. Not everyone is going to be treated the same way, and it, it it really does take a team approach. That's terrific. 
Dr. Forrester, high-dose opioid prescribing in the Kaiser Permanente Mid-Atlantic region fell by nearly 70 percent from 2012 to 17. What was the role of technology in accomplishing this? Right. So early on, you know, along with all our physician education and enhancing the resources that we had internally, we developed some decision support in our EMR that our physicians would have at the point of care. So it's not as reliable to, to say, oh, just remember to do this when you see the patient. Having that smart set that was basically focused on chronic opioid therapy management would enable the physician to get all of his options in one place, including choices of therapies at appropriate doses and quantities, referrals, any patient education materials, lab orders, the opioid patient agreement, any of those things, including the uh, integration of our prescription monitoring program. So having all that available in one place is really great. It also helps, of course, in our documentation requirements, as Medicare and Medicaid certainly are all about making sure we document everything appropriately. So having all that available in our smart set has really been very, very helpful. We're actually up to 77% in one of our areas right now. So we like to promote that. You both are involved in advocacy and participating at the national level, at the state level, testifying before senatorial committees and congressional committees. Why is it important for policymakers to hear from physicians? Well, you know, I believe those involved in health policy really do want to do the right thing, but sometimes they're just not really aware of the perspective of the physician or even the patient sometimes. So, for example, I know that Some of the regulations that have come through recently in my jurisdiction have been all about increasing the steps that are needed to prescribe an opioid. And to to some policymakers, it seems like that would help cut down unnecessary prescribing, but they don't sometimes realize that that can also cause significant delays in care for patients who actually need that pain treatment or make it very inconvenient for patients to get their medicine by requiring many more visits. So we have to be aware of the impact of some of these policies, and although their motivation may be right, they have to be given the perspectives of clinicians so that they understand what that impact might be. So our policymakers need to understand the the overall impact of, of what their policies are going to do. I couldn't agree more, and we, we certainly know that the pharmaceutical companies have a seat at the table and a voice and are influential. And balancing that with a physician perspective that is actually caring for the individual that is addicted and understands kind of the day-to-day consequences is just so vitally important. So what have we learned to avoid as a health system and in our prescribing practices based on our work in this area? You know, I think it's really important to make sure we have a balanced perspective and take every point of view into consideration. We kind of got into this opioid crisis when we initially undertreated pain, and there were actually lawsuits to say you weren't giving adequate pain control. And then the pendulum swung to the point where we were giving opioids for almost everything, and people were getting addicted and dying. And now as we're improving the safety of uh, prescribing in a safe way and making sure that our patients are okay, we have to make sure that we don't deny opioids to the people who actually need it for an appropriate use. And as Carol had mentioned earlier, the stigma 
we have actually been doing some studies with our patients. Our division of research has been taking a look and interviewing patients who have had to taper their drugs to see how that experience was and how we could have done it better than what we did. So I think those are some of the mistakes that we have to make sure that we avoid. I think also we, we must never forget to be aware of the emotional and psychiatric sometimes and social factors that can be surrounding the patient and exacerbating their pain conditions. And sometimes they're invisible. We don't see them right away, but we need to ask the right questions and make sure we can identify those factors because we may miss them if we're not careful. And, you know, there may be significant family issues or employment concerns or maybe there's a history of PTSD or there's some other behavioral health diagnosis that that hasn't been manifest yet. And we need to make sure we're addressing those as well because we, we can't be looking just at one condition if all these other factors could be affecting it. Yeah, that's an outstanding point, and I think uh, one of the things that makes me so proud of Kaiser Permanente is our focus on connecting the mind and the body. And much as both of you have pointed out, there's a historic stigma attached to addiction, uh, much as there's been a historic uh, stigma attached to mental health issues and behavioral health. And being a leader in helping communities and individuals to remove that stigma and to kind of bring this out in the open and connecting that pathway between the mind and the body, I think, is is so critical. So you talked earlier about the importance of educating physicians. Kaiser Permanente is opening up the School of Medicine. And I'd like to understand what would you like to see embedded in the curriculum and what advice might you give to the next generation of physicians to get ahead of the opioid epidemic, but also any type of drug epidemic. You know, one of the key things that we need to teach our medical students is better communication. I was just reflecting back on a patient when the opioid initiative came and I started bringing up the issue of their high doses and their on sleeping pills. And she looked at me and she said, Dr. Ashri, I had this neck injury in 1976 and six doctors have been giving me this stuff. Now you're telling me it's dangerous and it's going to kill me. I'm still around. (laughs) So having that conversation with the patient and uh, explaining to them why that is an issue is really important. And I think our medical students really need that armamentarium. And then having the permission to actually ask your colleagues for help. When you're actually stuck or have a difficult patient, be able to talk to one of your colleagues or an expert or an interdisciplinary team to be able to get the right sort of answers so you can help your patient. That's great advice. And and isn't that so often the case that we can never communicate enough and that bedside mannerism matters tremendously and we don't always all know the right answer? And the wonderful thing about being part of a multidisciplinary team is that you can rely upon each other for guidance and advice and navigating perhaps the the most difficult patient. Dr. Asari and Dr. Forstar, I want to thank you both. You are both the utmost experts at the national level, and I'm so thankful that you are part of Kaiser Permanente. I'm so thankful that you have committed your lives and your careers to stemming this epidemic, I think the world is better because of that. So thank you so much for joining me today, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thanks, Chris, for having us. That's our show for today. 
I'm Chris Grant, your host. Thanks for listening to the Permanente Medicine Podcast. You can find and stream our podcast by visiting permanente.org or by subscribing on iTunes or Google Play. We'll see you next time.